Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. Today, I, Henry Femi-Taylor, am joined by my esteemed co-host, Neil Thompson. Hello, everyone. Good to have you back. And we also have two very special guests, as today we're going to be talking about AI in society. And so on my left, I have Lord Tim Clement-Jones, and on my right, I have Tim Gordon. Uh, would just like to introduce yourself briefly? Thanks, Henry. I'm Tim Clement-Jones. I was the uh, former chair of the AI Select Committee in the House of Lords. I co-chair the all-party parliamentary group on artificial intelligence, and I speak for my party, the Lib Dems, on uh, everything really to do with science, innovation and technology. Wonderful. And I'm Tim Gordon. I'm a co-founder partner of uh, Best Practice AI, which is a consulting firm that advises corporate startups and investors on AI strategy and governance. We've also started an AI compliance-based US healthcare firm called Salus AI, and I'm a trustee at Full Fact, which is the UK's leading fact-checking authority. Charity. Really important work there. So I think the real first question is, uh, uh, what do we call you both, if you're both called Tim? That uh, You must have had come across this before. Uh, why don't you call me Lord Tim and him Tim? Isn't that the easiest thing? And then do you know who you're talking to? That works for me. That works for me. Excellent. So it's been a bit of a roller coaster for AI in recent years with ChatGPT being the thing on everybody's lips even now. And suddenly AI was back in the spotlight and suddenly AI is, is getting funding and AI is is the thing that's on everybody's lips. But it's actually been something that we've been looking at for a long time, the, the UK and internationally. Artificial intelligence has been researched for a long time and there are a lot of different opportunities and there's a lot of different threats and I think there's a lot of conflicting views, conflicting information. So I just would like to start with something easy, really easy. So what's AI then? Lord Tim. Uh, well, AI takes various forms. And I think one of the really difficult things is trying to work out it by reference to its functions. I think it's much better if people, I mean, I think the horse is bolted about uh, what about 70 years ago when John McCarthy invented the term artificial intelligence it would probably be a heck of a lot better if we talked about machine learning because that effectively what it is it's basically data applied to an algorithm and you know uh, or a neural network you know whatever we call that particular algorithm that's really what it is and sometimes you've got generative adversarial situations with two algorithms or more but basically it is the ability of an algorithm to apply itself to data uh, and in a sense learn from that and I think the thing that gives most people the biggest worry about AI is not so much the processing or anything like that because let's face it you know we've had computer software for long enough it's the possibility of autonomy that is the real issue and whether or not by learning from experience which is in a sense the the expression that's used by uh, the president of Microsoft, by learning from experience that then that algorithm is taking on a life of its own in a sense. I don't think it's all about a, a human equivalent intelligence and so on. It's about being able to create tasks that humans can do, but it is about what happens if you have a, something that can carry out human tasks without being under the control of humans. And that for me is the big issue. You know, whether it's an algorithm that's amplifying uh, social media messages towards children, creating addiction, whatever it may be, 
this is the, the concern that I think people have. And the narrative, of course, is incredibly unhelpful. I mean, we are sadly subject to a 3,000-year-old narrative. Homer was talking about autonomous creatures, uh, and humans have been frightened of aliens for a very, very long time. So as soon as you start characterising AI as alien, rather than as, if you like, an algorithm that's learning uh, from data that we are feeding it, it begins to become unhelpful in terms of how it's described. So, you know, I'm fairly determined to make sure we get this right, but certainly I think we're not quite at the point where we need to be ultra-concerned in the way that many people are expressing it, because we're not yet at the point where we have artificial general intelligence, which is the point at which there is true uh, autonomy in that. I think that's really interesting because a lot of people have mistakenly viewed ChatGPT as being a general intelligence because to a lot of people passes the Turing test as in you communicate with it and it feels like a human being is communicating back with you. But the wheels fall off when you try and take it further and you try and ask it complex technical questions because it's effectively what it's doing better than everything else in the space is it's just finding the next word to say better and faster than anything else has done that's been publicly available up until now so it's it's really a guessing engine i've heard it be called clippy on steroids but i feel uh, uh, we shouldn't besmirch clippy it its place in history I mean, where it should stay so if we have general intelligence and that is a bit of a red herring for now it may be a little red herring but the fact is if we don't get the regulation right now when agi does arrive it'll be too late mm. well i think to build on lord tim's point i think you will start with being very clear what ai is and ai essentially is a new way of writing software a traditional way of writing software you took a data input you applied some rules to it and you got an output with machine learning, you basically apply the input, you apply some sense of what the output might be, a label of some sort, and the machine then goes away and works out what the rules are. And obviously, creating your own rules is incredibly complicated. So trying to work out the difference between a dog and a cat, for example, is an incredibly hard thing for a human being to do. And what we do is effectively with AI and generative AI, we're taking that basic premise and scaling it up massively. And so we really need people to understand what it is that the, the tool is doing and therefore what is it that's going into it. So starting with what's the training data you're using? What's the data that goes in that makes sure that things happen properly? And there are lots of examples of this where essentially the training data that goes in is data that's based on often the biases in our existing world. So one example that's often used is Amazon used to do a, used to use a, um, an algorithm to help it with recruiting people. And turns out that over time, the algorithm consistently favoured male engineers, white male engineers. The reason for that, of course, was it was being trained on historic data, where it turned out that actually Amazon historically had not chosen to employ as many female engineers or engineers of colour. And therefore, you're in a situation where the historic bias is fundamentally driving the algorithm that emerges. And so we need to understand, the leaders need to understand, what it is they're trying to do in terms of, are you trying to build something better for the future? In which case, how do you handle some of these underlying issues of bias? The second big thing people need to understand, I think, is that this is not magic pixie dust. And there's a danger. Chief executives come back from exciting meetings or they listen to glamorous podcasts like this and they go, wow, this is going to transform my entire business. Go away, guys, and do this. And actually, it's often very hard to make this stuff happen in terms of the realities on the ground. And usually the big challenge is that actually getting the data right in the first place is really hard to do. So if you're thinking about getting the, the, the material you need into a, into a data system, getting the plumbing of the data right is consistently a challenge and consistently a problem. 
And the third issue, just to finish, to build on this, I think, is that people see AI as being, to, to t Lord Tim's point, as being essentially Terminator robots. And the way the media describe AI again and again is scary robots, you know, reaching out with fingers to reach out to human beings. That is totally the wrong way to think about it. This is essentially an Excel spreadsheet, which has got ambitions to make the world a bit different. It is not a Terminator robot about to take over the world. And we really need to help people understand what is it this thing is and therefore what the real limitations are. I absolutely agree with all the points that Tim's made, but I just want to highlight one point, the sort of CEO board issue. This is not magic, exactly as Tim says, but it's not any old technology. You know, you can't just simply say, if you're sitting there in the Audit and Risk Committee, oh, fine, look, this is just the, the, the scale of the issues involved here are what they've always been. You know, we've always adopted new technology in our business, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think the issues relating to AI are different, and that's really how I first got involved. I used to be director, company secretary of a PLC. You know, I've done a lot of corporate governance in my time, and it struck me as we were going through this, you know, five years ago with our select committee, that, the, that this was different. And basically, companies would need to reappraise their corporate governance by reference to AI. The black box nature of it, I think, is really important. The, the, the issues which have been highlighted with generative AI, the whole inaccuracy issue, major issues there. And it's very easy, you know, for boards to say, oh, it's the chief technology officer. It's the CIO, let them get on with it, basically. You know, we're not, who I don't know anything about, you know, this stuff. They can't do that anymore, in my view. I think the, the ethical issues surrounding AI, particularly the sort of issues of bias that Tim has mentioned, are so great. And all the other issues of accountability and explainability and transparency, uh, boards need to take responsibility for that. Which effectively comes out of the black box aspect. The fact that we don't actually know how it's arrived at a particular decision. We have set it running with its training data and it is kicking out answers. And very often you don't know what's happened in those intermediate steps. So it just comes up with the best answer. And sometimes that might look like a very interesting, organically shaped uh, engineering structure that does something in a very sublime and, and beautiful way. And other times it might look like sending police forces into minority areas because that's where the most crimes are so this is where we'll get the most bang for our buck if that is our objective so yeah i think it's really uh, important that um that accountability and that mm. transparency aspect but i think we have to be clear the black box is also often used as an excuse to do nothing yeah because if you can say it's a black box and understand it therefore what can i do Actually, there's lots of things you can do. You can be very clear about, for example, we've done a lot of work to lay out AI explainability statements, which is explaining where, you know, where did the data come from? What's the training assumptions? What's your governance? What processes did you go through? What guardrails have you put in place? How have you thought about it? Really articulating for people the whole mix of things that are going on in terms of laying things out. You could do a whole bunch of stuff around in terms of auditing outcomes. What are the outcomes? How do the outcomes compare in terms of sort of harms or minority groups or other sort of particularly sensitive issues? And so you can place this a whole bunch of tools that are evolving, being built inside the industry, which people can use and should use. I think the black box is in danger sometimes of being an excuse. Interesting. Yeah, it's just reflecting on the conversation. The thing, the thing I, what I worry about when sort of projecting forward is the, the economics of sort of the digital economies been about this sort of digital moats of data and who can collect these sort of vast pools of... It's the new oil. Yeah, and my, my challenge to that is, and it's sort of, you say about input data and understanding the tags, I think 
there's a very short step from collecting data, doing some stuff with it using AI and having an output versus if we look at the trajectory of change of computing power, once you get into the worlds of quantum computing, what have you, is just forget about existing data, just the brute force calculation of input data and operate it from that basis. What I mean is, so for example, people that are anxious about having an online presence, they don't, they won't put their pictures online, they won't give the internet any of their information because they don't want to be um, categorized as a profile or be have the information used. I think we're not a million miles away from a profile just being able to be generated anyway from very small data points, um, and that's 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 the true danger because then. It hasn't got a data set for you to be able to understand your assumptions. It's 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 generating its own data set to learn from, from just brute forcing the calculation. Absolutely, and it's already impossible with some of these large language models, as the, in a sense the creative industries are mm. really concerned about, to actually say where the data's come from, mm. where where the text has come from, where the images have come from. You know, it's it has been a move fast and break things environment in terms of IP being completely irrelevant as far as most of the creation of these um, large language models has been concerned. And that in turn, because exactly as you say, the kind of access to exacompute and large data sets are concerned, um, uh, this has got a huge competition issue. I mean, you know, basically one of the key things that I concern myself with is the fact that at the end of the day, we're going to have a kind of Coke versus Pepsi for artificial intelligence systems. Systems that you know you either have to sign up to one or the other basically mm. uh, if we're not careful as it is you know in terms of app stores we've got pretty limited choice haven't we by and large I think we're going to find ourselves in a very limited situation uh, if uh, we find these sort of multimodal type AI systems which are, are you know even more complex than large language models well how many people how many companies are going to be able to develop mm. those it's going to be about three you know maybe four other than China, which has got its own uh, beer moths, basically, in this area. So, you know, we've got quite a lot of issues thundering down the track in this respect. And to stick with our music industry tradition, a citation needed, the American lawyers that have calculated every permutation of melody and chord structure, written it to a hard drive, and have said, we've written all of music. Oh, really? Luckily, the, uh, <laughs> and they've copyrighted it, but they're doing it as, it, they're doing it, but it's more of a thought experiment type of thing, but, you know, as far as they're concerned, they've they've written all possible permutations. So any future music written. I wonder how much of it is good. awful. So that, this, this well, there's a whole bunch of court cases at the moment where effectively people are trying to establish AI can have a copyright, yeah. and that's effectively being rejected pretty much globally at yeah. the moment. So location after location, that's being pushed. But back. the irony is, we have our copyright law does allow that. These are American cases which don't. But we actually, very unusually across the world, allow software to write copyright material or copyrightable material. The, the broader point we made earlier, I think in a year's time we'll have different answers to these questions. I think we're still in the place where we don't yet know whether, to Lord Tim's point, we'll have a couple of models or whether actually the open source models that are coming out of the Facebook architecture and the Llama and so, so on are actually going to be the ones that succeed. We also don't know whether it's going to be general models or vertically specific models. So will it be a law model or will it be a general model that does everything across all the, all the verticals? And so these are the debates which are sort of running at the moment. The other question you mentioned about synthetic data there's a debate, I think, at the moment as to whether synthetic data will be enough to actually keep building new models or whether, in fact, models that are trained on synthetic data end up collapsing in on themselves because effectively you remove the outliers as this stuff gets more and more sort of, you know, more and more standardised. So I think a lot of these debates are very much at the edge of the engineering field. Let's not forget, ChatGPT sort of came out less than a year ago now. So the world is moving incredibly quickly at the moment and this stuff will continue evolving. Yeah,
there is also a flood. More than the lake, there are multiple oceans of data that is just accessible. We sometimes underplay the importance of data that we don't have access to as yet. So the way that traffic moves through roads and cities, deaths from air pollution and the way that certain healthcare conditions can interact with each other. There is a need for IP, certainly, so that people can you know, benefit from coming up with new innovative ways of doing things. But I think we are missing out on a huge public good by creating the opportunity to have new AI models for managing all sorts of different ways of operating the world. I do take your point, and that is a point made by quite a lot of developers in the healthcare space particularly. Mm. But you've got the countervailing issue that without public trust, you're not going to be able to exploit the data to the fullest possible extent you know, that, that, that you need to. And you know, I actually wrote a paper over the summer, you know, the sad creature that I am, about AI and healthcare. This is one of the limiting factors, the lack of public trust, because, you know, we saw what happened with opting out of personal data given to GPs, you know, basically terrible communications. People thought, oi, why do you need it? And nobody's explained why you need my patient data. And three million people eventually opted out of giving their data or allowing their patient data to be released by the GPs into the National Health Service system. So you've got to get it right in that respect. And I do agree. And I think the organisation of health data, you know, these new federated data platforms that the NHS England is putting together, it's going in the right direction. But unless you carry the public with you, that's the issue. And of course, the same writ large is true about uh, regulation of AI. It's one of the reasons why, if we're going to actually convince people that there aren't all these black boxes knocking around and you know they're all working against the interests of the ordinary citizen I mean you know just take live facial recognition for example as an issue unless you persuade the public that this is a benign technology uh, then I think we're going to be in trouble. And from a business perspective what I like about this is there's actually an economic value to being trusted because essentially if people are willing to share their data with you then effectively you have a lower, lower cost. If your suppliers across your supply chain are more willing to share data with you, you have a lower cost. So how you behave and actually have a real clear economic knock-on impact, which I think is one of the real potential upsides of here. I think going back to your earlier point, though, about the sort of the missing data, you look at ChatGPT or these generative AI models, they're largely based on Western, European, sorry, North American conversations. They're based on Reddit. They're based on Wikipedia. They're based on a whole series of content sources, which are largely North American, English-based, and so on. So when you start rolling these tools out in other languages and other cultures, you begin to see what it really means is the first draft of everything is being written in California. And what does that mean when say, you're sat in Iran, you're trying to do your homework, and your first draft pops up with all sorts of Californian stuff embedded in it? So there's questions as to where this goes and what happens. In Icelandic, which was one of the first partners of GPT-4, they rolled out in Icelandic, it ended up inventing new words. Now, these are compound words because Icelandic didn't have some of the words you might have in English. Now, you know, whether that means it in the long term changes the Icelandic language is an open question. Who ends up owning the Icelandic language may be another question. But these are all issues, cultural issues, which come out of these data bias things, which are kind of important. And Iceland's, a, you know, it's a, it's a rich, strong country. It can do what it wants. But there's a whole slew of languages around the world where actually there's a real issue of potential cultural imperialism emerging. Is, is an analogy here, like map making essentially crystallised the name of certain places? I just think it's sort of the... The, the names of towns in the UK, um, they all have this 
a history of how they've been formed from slang and what have you, and then we made a map of those and that made them the formal names. Is, is this, is this a similar? is a classic one. You know, there's lots of these. But there's a real issue potentially that if we move into a world where 90% or 99% of future content is going to be AI generated, because that's what's actually going to dominate the entire internet in the future. Then we're going to speak like Silicon Valley, aren't we? But we're going to crystallise this moment in time as being kind of the core, the baseline of whatever we do. Now, you could shift the baseline over time, but the baseline gives you real strength. Hmm. Can I just bring up an example of the use of synthetic data, which I only came across this morning, which I was really interested in. We're doing an inquiry into uh, AI in weapons in a special select committee in the Lords. And we had uh, evidence from the procurement minister and we had the strategic head, if you like, of the army's AI operations, if you like, their sort of top general who deals with digital. And they were talking about use of synthetic data because in terms of image recognition, they can do it for the tanks they've got and the sort of tanks they knew were out there and they, you know, they had pretty pictures of all these tanks. But what they didn't have was all the pictures of how you camouflage tanks. So you had to think about all the different ways that you camouflage tanks. And so they had to add all that to the database and they had to add what they might think about new tanks might look like. You know, more, I don't know whether or streamlined tanks or whatever. But it's it's in, it's a creative process, actually, mm. uh, thinking about this synthetic data, which I thought was really, uh, really interesting, that they that the army should have people devoted to doing this and thinking about how you actually make it all much more effective. Now, of course, they're going to add personal biases and heaven knows what else you've got to get out of the synthetic data. Uh, but I thought it was interesting that, you know, in that context, you know, which is pretty critical, in terms of, you know, recognition of your enemies. And they're using it, and it's all relative to Ukraine, of course, as well, uh, particularly relevant to Ukraine. So I thought this was an absolute demonstration of how important synthetic data actually can be. We've done, I mean, my colleagues have some work in a somewhat less dramatic fashion, but we're helping basically surgeons make sure they've got the right tools in when they're doing surgeries. Have they got the right sort of things to, to make decisions, the right things to sort of insert in people's bodies and so on when they're doing sort of knee surgery and so on. And so effectively we're trying to create sort of create where you can keep track of the tools that are in there and make sure that's in the right sort of place. And actually to do that, we had to generate thousands and thousands of synthetic pictures of these particular tools in different situations, different lighting modes, different scenarios, and so on. Even then, you've still got debaters to have got the right camera and all that type of stuff. So you've got, you've got quite a lot of detail on this. But you need to ultimately generate millions of these, these virtual virtual tools. And that's a, that's a real opportunity for people in the space. Something I worked on was quite interesting is technology that was made in the entertainment industry for essentially creating environments procedurally generating environments is the term, to apply for learning for autonomous vehicles. You know, why have the autonomous vehicle make the mistake in real life when you can generate environments and, because algorithms can be digital, right? This is the yeah, thing, yeah. isn't it? The We're talking about the physical manifestation of an algorithm, but you can set the algorithm to work to cyberspace. Well, that's why the robot thing is so misleading, because if people only think that AI is embodied, i.e. in a robot uh, or a sort of physical manifestation, then, you know, that's completely wrong, because the most powerful AI is going to be not embodied. It's mm. going to be, as you say, in cyberspace, basically. Mm. So society... 
So, 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 yeah, there you go. Well, I've already seen some excellent hoodies and jumpers that are computer vision resistant and can spoof automatic recognition of your person. And I think so there people are doing that for sort of demos and so, you know, they put face paint on and so on. Yeah. My sense is all that stuff, just every generation, are just you're falling behind all the time. It's, it's a race, but you're going to lose it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, there was a case where, I mean, very early on, if you put a plaster on or something, yeah. that would, but now it's pretty good, isn't it? Mm. I still have to take my hat off, uh, but, you know, there were the Chinese who, who sort of point out that you put a couple of dots on the road and a Tesla would swerve across the road and all that stuff just gets sort of ironed out. That's the thing as well. I think that is a bit of a cultural reaction to technology often is this sort of, oh, it did that wrong. It's gone. Here's that one use case that didn't work. But I feel like things move so quickly now yeah. that no, you don't have that opportunity. And I, th I think there's a point whereby we hold, I think correctly, algorithms to far higher standard than we do human beings. Uh, yeah. So oh, clearly absolutely. every year... Millions of humans die on the roads. I mean, millions, hundreds of thousands of humans die on the road every year. But, you know, the headline is one person gets killed in an automated car crash. Now, I happen to think it is right we hold it to far higher standard because if we're going to roll it out, we need to be sure it's going to be safe. But we are consistently a place where actually we hold these algorithms to higher standards than humans. Well, it's the worry the in those circumstances, too, that if you like, there isn't accountability for the algorithm or whatever it may be. But I entirely agree with you. I mean, look, for instance, uh, look at the, and it wasn't even AI, the algorithm that was used for assessment of uh, A-levels and so on during the pandemic. I mean, the outcry there was absolutely enormous. And, uh, you know, I doubt whether the general public had, had heard uh, what an algorithm was much before then and yet bang and I'd have been in that same position as somebody who was consistently underestimated by their teachers <laughs> you know, yeah. you know I, I would have fallen through that cracks 100% and the data is self-reinforcing so that's part of it you know, we have synthetic data we have biased data and I think there's managing all of that but I think in the future we need to be able to weed data if data is AI created then we need to know the provenance and we need to understand where it has come from, what transformations have taken place upon it and what we could therefore do with that. That is something that there's a, a lot to do there. Haven't the horse bolted though? Mm. I mean, in many ways, with large language models, hasn't that bolted? Well, potentially, but for example, a lot of engineering is still designed by standard. And the standard is slow moving and over engineered, so uses say a lot more concrete and therefore is more more impactful on the environment than it should be. And there isn't really that space to optimize in there. And a lot of people are looking for, well, how do I just automate this process that we have? And I think there are there are going to be lots of verticals. They are their own black boxes. This industry runs like this, and we do it this way because it's for people. And uh, we have these systems, and we know best, etc. Once we start getting into these worlds, it will really mix it up. What is the right data, and should the engineering data that is used here be the same engineering data that is used in Chile, where they have a lot of earthquakes, or Japan, where they have a lot of earthquakes. You know, there's these sorts of regional differences in factors that inform decision-making that I just don't think would come up. And that's the crying shame of the implementation of this, because it can be honed into the specific use cases, but we're actually using its ability to be adaptive to scale up to have this monolithic cultural... Thing, Absolutely. You know. I mean, so, if you keep it within the vertical, to use your expression, you stand a better chance of having a closed or reasonably closed system where you guarantee the accuracy of it and so on. But the more general it is in that sense, in terms of the use of a large language model, I mean, you know, we've already seen all the problems associated with that. If people mm -hmm. over rely on the, uh, treating it as a kind of encyclopedia, which it certainly isn't, then you're in trouble. But 
in say for instance in engineering I mean you've got a much better opportunity to have a system that actually delivers the goods in terms of accuracy and information and so on. But one of the key things to make this work is transparency. Clarity on what data is being used, how it's being rolled out and so on. I think one thing I see shifting this industry at the moment is it's gone from being a very sort of open, academic-led, you know, the power is sat with the individuals, the very smart people in university have driven things. And the moment the power has basically shifted to capital. So it's shifted to people with vast amounts of money who can basically drive these vast models involving huge amounts of data and huge amounts of compute. And the moment the power is shifting to states. Has become, this has become a matter of national competitiveness. And the challenge in all that is actually that transparency that probably was there for early generations of the technology is increasingly disappearing. So when GPT-4 came out, OpenAI explicitly did not tell the world what the training data was, what the processes were, how it had been put together in a way they'd not done with their previous versions. And I think that entire trend is going to continue for reasons of business competition and increasingly national competition. And so therefore we're going to danger is we're moving away from that transparency that I think is key to making this thing work. That's absolutely right. But there is a conflict too. I mean, there is at the moment, we've got this kind of open source movement. And I think we've got to take a decision about whether or not we want to encourage that or not. I'm a little bit wary about the open source movement because if you can hook yourself on and and you know the most obvious example is things like pornography generated by uh, open source systems and there are you know a number and it, it is quite pernicious but uh, you know what worries me is almost more than monopoly or oligopoly of the big players you know with extra compute and large data sets and so on and exactly as Tim says capital is my big worry is that when you hook on to an open source system that you then acquire the power but you don't necessarily have the guardrails around that mm-hmm. that a big player has to have for reputational so reasons. So Coke and Pepsi is good? <sighs> In this is the conflict. We're all being told at the moment, open source is great, blah, blah, blah. I am not convinced. Consid- considering that you're both here, a question I've always wanted to ask your... your, your um, Rest in peace, Neil people. Thompson's career, 2023. Yeah, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> so the way I see sort of the role of government and what we do around sort of the protection of consumers and people is based on people. Is the laws and the the things that we do to protect people extensible into the sort of digital representations of that? So I'm thinking, say, like your medical record in the context of its utilisation in AI. And back to your sort of protection through these systems, how are we going to have to move to protect the citizen both as a physical and digital entity? I can see lots there in terms of I'm protected as a physical citizen and my medical record and where that goes, but then my digital representation in the digital space in the context of AI, could those rights be, the physical rights that we have, be extended into digital? It seems all over the show, doesn't it? It seems like there's all sorts of different... Well, I think that's why people are worried about particular suppliers of sort of services to make health data more interoperable, mm-hmm. who shall remain nameless in this podcast. But this is one of the issues. I think I think the, the equivalent rights should be there. It comes back to the digital twin issue. I think it's incredibly helpful to have the digital twin capability, um, you know, for surgeons and physicians. And I mean, not, it's not just about buildings and so on. I mean, the, the, the being able to, if you like, to experiment and look into alternatives and options, I think is fantastic fantastically useful but nevertheless if you are using personal patient data to build a 
digital twin for health purposes, I think that is something uh, that the uh, patient should have some rights over. I mean, uh, the equivalent rights in that sense, even though it's for their benefit. You know, I don't think you can say, don't worry, your pretty little head, this is all for your benefit. I just mm. don't think that's viable. I, I think this goes to the heart of actually one of the big political challenges of the 21st century, which is if you take a step back and think about liberal democracy, liberal democracy has done well because historically we've, we've associated freedom with economic success. And people have had better life outcomes in places that have been freer. So the Nazis, the communists, whatever, were essentially beaten by economically superior returns in places that were free. And I think one of the questions with AI, looking at, for example, a large country to the east, which is very good at AI, China, for example, they have a fundamentally different model there, potentially, which is actually you share your information. Mm -hmm. If you share your information, you can get better outcomes. So if I know about your how well you slept, I know what you ate, I know what exercise you did, I know what book you're reading, I know how you're feeling emotionally, I know how things are going at work, I know a huge amount of stuff about you, I can probably give you a better health outcome than the NHS where you turn up and say, I've got a cough today. And so fundamentally, is there, is there, a, is there a world where actually the less freedom you have, the less privacy you have at least, you actually end up with a better outcomes in terms of health, in terms of economics and so on. And I think that's one of the big debates of the 21st century, which is how much do we share? And the more we share, probably we get something better back in return. But how do we do it in a way that doesn't actually destroy some of our underlying freedoms? You'd probably find Silicon Valley agreeing with China in some respects, because it's for your good, the sharing of data and so on and so forth. And that's almost a freedom, isn't it? The data should be free. Exactly. You know, the Facebook model is, why would you not share everything? And that's, that's the original Mark Zuckerberg view of the world. It'll be good for you in all sorts of ways. Precisely. But then, the, as you say, the equivalent is China being the state saying that. But I think we have to fall quite a long way from there because I think we're back to the transparency point as well. We have to build that in. And my worry about our current proposals in the UK is that we're not even close to that. We're not even saying, right, this is what we are going to mandate as the basics across, horizontally across the different vertical mm. sectors. And, you know, OK, people may think the EU has gone too far in terms of risk assessment and conformity assessment and so on and so forth and actually outright saying this form of AI is unacceptable or this application of AI is unacceptable. We have to move further because it's all very well saying we got principles and it's all very well developing standards but you've got to have something in the middle that says we're going to make sure that the standards which reflect those principles are actually mandated in certain circumstances. So, you know, it, it's not overcomplicated, but I think people like to think that regulation is the enemy of, of innovation. And I actually think that provided you don't over-regulate and provided the communication is clear, you can actually stimulate innovation because people understand what the, what the rules are, basically. I think we're in 1905 with the auto industry. Cars have arrived. People don't quite know what's going on. Now, over the course of the 20th century, mankind did a deal with cars where effectively we let them kill hundreds of thousands of every year. We let them pollute our cities. We let them transform our entire architecture, transform how we live our lives. But effectively, man accepted that deal because the economic returns were so much better than the alternative. We're going through the same process with algorithms. And we are... I mean, Lord Tim's in the right place, but we are the first generation that's experiencing this, but we're also probably the last generation that could really impact on the rules that emerge and what happens, yeah. which is why what Lord Tim is doing in government is so important because we really need to get to a place where, you know, we work out the regulation that works. Now, the regulation may not start well. I mean, you know, the first regulation around cars was a little man walking around with a red flag, which meant you couldn't drive more than five or six miles an hour. Fundamentally, you know, we don't want AI regulation that does that. But you do need to work out what the equivalent of the driving license, the seatbelt, which side of the road you drive on.
I'm going to take your analogy a little bit further because when cars first came out, all sorts of things that we take for granted weren't standardised. Where is the clutch? Where is the brake pedal? Where is the steering wheel? What is a parking brake? Is a is a parking Did brake? A all these things that are just seem fundamental to the smooth running of cars, let alone the fact that it still kill people. But we did it well. And that's the interesting. People think that we're in a completely novel situation in terms of addressing a new technology. I've got a picture that I use quite often in my in presentations between 1905 in Fifth Avenue and 1913. There was a single car and all horses in 1905 going down Fifth Avenue. In 1913, there is not a horse in sight. It's all cars. So actually, what regulation has done and they and clearly that regulation came you know started coming in in that early period uh, uh, it, it, it led to the flourishing of that particular technology so you know if we get it right you know this will work you were on to an example that I use a lot and it's the automotive industry in the context of we created a platform of things that have actually impacted our lives in a very in a big way so pollution the way that we've architected our cities and how hostile that's become towards pedestrians, et cetera, et cetera. On top of that, it's also social media and sort of the outcomes that we're seeing of that in terms of the impact it has on our mental health, the impact in terms of how we influence through those things. And what we're seeing with these technologies is sort of this exponential ability to impact outcomes. And we'll probably never know what the true outcome of the realization of this technology in 10, maybe what, you take a picture today, take a picture in 10 yeah. years time. What, what do, do you have a view on what it could, well, it, these it, things it, could I mean, be? the analogy is quite interesting. You talked about this sort of online harms, online safety side of things. We're in unknown territory we're groping our way we know something needs to be done we're trying a particular way forward but we all realize that we may have to amend and change and respond and so on but you know you have to start somewhere frankly and I think that most sensible people know that you've got to start regulating and put these principles into practice and you can't just simply expect individual sectors to voluntarily do things and the regulator to say oh it would be nice if you actually did a risk assessment or something according to these standards I mean life isn't like that and you know I think we're in a situation in this country at the moment and it's interesting the way the states is moving actually but in this country we've got a situation where a government's saying different things you know we've got a government that's got, had a white paper which was very unprescriptive and here we are we've got an AI safety summit taking place being convened by the Prime Minister in November so you know so what's up? Do we want regulation? Do we want safe AI or not? How are we going to get there? So I think this next few months, and especially with the G20, with the G7, with the OECD, everybody's roaring ahead in many respects. And I think we're going to have to follow. But what that does mean is there is a convergence here. It may not be total convergence on the regulation, but the standards are definitely converging. And of course, the states being a litigation-based culture may not regulate, but sure as hell, somebody's going to get sued to the ends of the earth if they haven't complied with certain standards, which say, for instance, have been set by the National Institute for Standards and Technology. You know, that sort of thing. People are going to say, well, you're negligent. You failed to uh, adopt best practice. And that's the U.S way of doing things and they don't even need to have new legislation so again you know there'll be EU one side the US the other the UK 
will have to really come hither, I think, at the end of the day. Something that jumps out, you're speaking this. So are we, in terms of, hear me out here. So in terms of what's happened in terms of the outcome of having finan- the financial system and financial centres across the world and what have you, are we looking at the same in terms of AI? Because I don't think AI as a technology actually is comparable to social media and cars because they're more sort of specific tools. But the finance system is much broader and has a systemic impact in horizontally investing across everything, right? <laughs> is, is this a similar thing where countries are going to essentially, the same way countries battle on where companies do their IPOs, where companies will come and do business or where they do business and where they don't do business, you know, swap financial system for... AI data system of companies is that is that closer to is what we might next, see thing. in terms well, of how nations move? Car companies have to be careful about defining it. So clearly, Detroit was the car city, but actually, Walmart was a car company. You know, every com- every house builder that built suburbia was a car company. The entire way you ran your, your society was cars. Now, they happened to manufacture most of the automobiles in one or two places, mm-hmm. but actually, the, the car was pervasive everywhere else. I mean, I think actually the UK has got a really specific challenge, which is where we have competitive advantage in this country is around basically using the English language to, to do argumentative stuff, whether it's writing novels or whether it's, it's producing TV shows or whether it's being lawyers or whether it's being consultants. All of those things are massively open to radical change through AI. And generative AI is basically a homing missile coming for the UK's areas of competitive advantage. And because we've created so much copyright and so much material to do all this stuff, clearly that's all gone into the model as well. So effectively, we're very economically open to a massive transformation that's going to come our way. I think one of the big problems for the UK is we are not ready. The industry, we talk about the AI industry, that doesn't worry me in the UK. The AI industry will do fine. It's the industry's ability to adopt AI in the UK that I think is the complete gap at the moment. And we have a real challenge, which I think goes to, the, to Tim's, Lord Tim's point, which is we're never going to be able to set the tone of the, the regulatory stuff globally because our companies are actually quite weak at using AI. So I do a lot of work looking at, for example, where, you know, working with a company called Evident, working on, on where banks are good at AI. The UK banks are falling massively behind. American banks employ more people to do AI in London than UK banks do. And so we have a very real, very specific strategic challenge in this country, which is I think we're quite open to what's coming down the track. Yeah, and, and you're quite right. I mean, the surveys all show that our level of AI adoption is very low in this country. I do want to make one point on the regulation, though. I mean, I do believe that at the end of the day, the regulation will be driven by large corporates. It'll be the multinationals that will decide effectively on the shape of, of regulation, not the tech companies, but those who are adopting AI, because they will say, well, if I have to, you know, adhere to uh, one set of regulations in the UK, another, you know, one form of risk assessment, another form in the EU, a different other form in the US, then that is not going to be totally unhelpful. So they will be driving this kind of convergence, basically, and they will want uh, the UK uh, not to be an outlier in all of this, but to actually conform to, uh, you know, uh, the general pattern of what is required uh, in terms of risk assessment and uh, and uh, testing uh, standards and so on and so forth. So, you know, to some degree, you know, we are, what it, whether we like it or not, we can't just say we are exceptional, as uh, the UK sometimes uh, likes to think it is, you know, we're a science superpower, we can do all this stuff. We have to recognise that we are a relatively small market in all of this and we'll have to travel along. But I I do so much agree. And it's, you know, given that we have such a brilliant research and development scene in AI, the commercialization, you know, all that side of things is still 
really not up to scratch and the scale up finance available still not up to scratch we've got better but it hasn't been fast enough and as a result we haven't exploited some of our great talent in the way that we should and then finally on the intellectual property side I mean that is absolutely crucial for us as a a nation I couldn't agree with Tim Moore it's the root interestingly enough of of course the actors and writers strike that's what existentially they're worried about well you know it's quite interesting we we haven't had a strike here on that basis but actually uh, it, it, but Tim is right dry, work has dried up for all our, yeah, our studios yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's had it? a huge impact yeah. but actually AI is going to have an even bigger impact on us relatively because relatively the creative industries are so important to the UK yeah so there's a lot of vulnerable sectors and organisations and I wonder if this is certainly my observation of how the UK often operates our institutions you know we did a lot of institutions first go us British first well done well done and then everyone else goes and does it better but we can't change because we've established an approach and I don't think we have that problem with AI yet but it's all those governance issues all those internal organisational structures the laws the risks you know I mean to move back to a kind of a physical analogy you know the railway lines is a great analogy in the fact that you know it was first so there were lots and we just went for it and they were everywhere and everyone had access to it but if you were to redesign that for the modern world you would design it differently do you know where i'm going with my way i go i I slightly screw because i think and i'd love to lord tim's views but we are when philip hammond stood up there's a period where every time he stood up he announced something new a new sort of office for ai or turing institute whatever it was and sort of under rishi sunak we're now seeing sort of you know task forces being launched and so on all of which is good stuff with very very smart people they're all kind of subscale not, yep. None of them are quite big enough. The sums announced are all sort of a fraction of what yep. any other nation spending or, or what the big US corporates would spend. So it's kind of like, yeah. I, I think the problem more, though, is a bigger one, which is just management imagination and the ability to take this stuff forward. I started my career in the newspaper industry back in the many years ago, and around the time the internet first came out. And actually, it took 20 years for the newspaper to work out how to actually handle the internet. In that process, probably 80% of newspapers went bankrupt or 80% of journalists disappeared. You know, the massive blowout coming through. That is precisely the process we're going through now. And I think we're a bit in a sort of danger where people are sort of putting their head in the sand and going, nah, it's all a bit too far away. It's all too black boxy. It's not going to impact me. Management teams now need to say, if I want my business to be worth anything in five to 10 years' time, I need to be engaging with this. I need to be investing in it. I need to be taking gamble. But that's exactly where we started our conversation which was about senior management you know yeah. I mean this is uh, this is still a real issue of our board culture basically that oh I, I know nothing about tech I'm, give I'm, it to the CTO I'm, yeah, exactly I, you know maths oh no I don't like you know and, and of course the same is true of our government and civil servants and so on we don't have a kind of engineering tech mindset yes there's almost this uh, I feel there's uh, oh there's a new thing oh we'll get a new role for that Uh, Okay, we'll get the risk person, right? Your risk is you. Okay, technology, that's you. Whereas we need this much more dynamic, well-funded and empowered. uh, But also, to think about the technology, it's not a technology issue. It's fundamentally, it's an economics issue. Mm. You're shifting your business from being all about variable costs to fixed costs. And then that just changes the dynamics of everything. So the newspaper industry shifted from the variable cost of printing a dead tree and shoving it through someone's door with a you know, all sorts of printing presses and vans in the middle, to a fixed cost, which is a website, which you then scaled everywhere. That economic shift is an unbelievably huge one, which we're now seeing happening on the content creation side of things. And because we missed it, because the newspaper industry missed it, Google and Facebook ended up owning that space. 
That's what's going to happen in the whole series. Of is, it, is, it, is it that they missed it or is it... It's procurement lack of confidence, actually, in my view. I mean, okay. by and large, that's a bit, we're back into the sort of regulatory area because I think the more that you've got kite marking, you've got clear standards... Uh, you've got you've got in a sense um, less bespoke products, but much more kind of products that are off the shelf and so mm-hmm. on. Uh, the more confidence people can have that they are things that are going to benefit their business, particularly you know the the sort of SME area. But uh, it, you know we don't have that yet. So uh, so it, you know this idea that if you just let a thousand flowers bloom and you keep away from regulating, everything's going to be fine. I mean it's completely wrong in my view. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's been really a really fascinating conversation. There's a lot of challenges and a lot of opportunities, so we certainly need to see more effort made in the UK to drive the economic opportunity and to see the impacts and the opportunities and the new business models that will be emerging for these variable cost uh, organizations that are used to selling time, for example, and having much more fixed costs. And there's, so there's this whole economic side. This whole social side is also a very big issue in the sense that we can't let technology firms run roughshod over the citizen. But simultaneously, there is a huge opportunity for the way that the world operates by approaching new AI implementations into our governance, into the way that the world runs on a day-to-day basis from government and from economic organizations and for the citizen. If we don't do something, then we're going to get left behind internationally. So... I think that's been a wonderful episode. I'd like to thank my co-host, Neil Thompson. Thank you, Neil. Thank you. And, of course, uh, Lord Tim Clement-Jones. Great pleasure. And, of course, Tim Gordon. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you so much for listening and catch us next time on the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. Podcast.